Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with a very busy Nigel Farage. Nigel, we'll start with a bit of schadenfreude. The German economy is in recession. The UK economy is not and is not expected to be this year. <laughs> I don't know what, what went right, what went wrong. I don't know how you want to put it, uh, but this is immensely amusing, isn't it? Well, the Merkel legacy, I mean, don't forget, we were told by everybody that female leaders are so much better than men. Female leaders are the best. We should all have women leaders. And of course, the truth is it's irrelevant whether someone's male or female. They either make good judgments or they make bad judgments. Um, let's hope the world gets back to that sort of sanity before too long. Uh, Merkel uh, made some huge long-term bad decisions. Uh, German productivity, which they used to pride themselves on, has effectively fallen off a cliff uh, much. It's interesting, when you go to Germany, it feels like Britain was 30 years ago. It, it hasn't become a modern country. Um, you know, you might say they've got a better quality of life, but you can't buy a pint of milk on a Sunday. Uh, getting cash out of a cash machine is quite difficult. They're kind of stuck with that previous society and model that was so successful for many years, but kind of haven't quite moved on. Um, but I don't think any of us should be too complacent. I mean, even though those ghastly people at the International Monetary Fund once again have got their bearish predictions for Brexit Britain wrong, but it's not exactly crack out the English sparkling wine time, is it? You know, I mean, you know, it's not as good as that. It's not as bad as we were told, but it's not as good as that. But it's just so embarrassing and humiliating. At some point, maybe, maybe my hopes are going to be dashed by what you say next, but at some point, surely people believe the opposite of what they say. Well, that may well be true. But the other thing that's amusing me this week is gilt yields, the behavior of the gilt markets, we're up to and above where we were when, if you remember, we were on the point of oblivion. We had this prime minister and chancellor, and they wanted to do some terrible things, terrible, awful. They wanted to reduce the size of a state. Well, that would never do. They wanted to cut taxes. Shock horror. But worst of all, and this unforgivable in the modern world, they wanted to incentivize ordinary men and women to set up their own businesses and succeed. Well, of course, that did not suit the globalist agenda. So we had the IMF, the White House, the BBC, everyone telling us that Britain was about to fall off a cliff. Nobody would buy our gilts anymore. The country was on the verge of disaster. And off they went to be replaced by a former a former senior Goldman Sachs man and a globalist and pro-China man called Jeremy Hunt. And now we're exactly back where we were, not because of Liz Truss and Quasi-Quartain, but because of the sheer incompetence and stupidity of Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England. And unless you scour the financial pages, you wouldn't even know it was happening. That, I think, is really the big economic story of the week. You know, the governor, the governor admitting that the modelling they were using was profoundly wrong. Well, anybody that's followed this podcast will know we were screaming that loudly at the time. Uh, and then, of course, once again, they get the inflation figures wrong because guess what? Underlying inflation is more persistent than they thought it was going to be. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to say I told you so, but that old quote Inflation is a disease of money caused by government and takes longer to get rid of than anybody ever realizes. Boy, isn't that true. 
Let's dig in a bit more to that story. So the key fact here is that the interest rate that the government borrows at is back at about the same level as it was at the height of this crash during the the, the Liz Truss um, quasi-quartian budget saga. What is that revealing about what happens next? Because, for example, we've got a similar situation in the US where T-bills, so the short-term borrowing of the US government, the yield was 7% for a, a short time. In Japan, they're already spending 22% of their budget on interest. Uh, and you know, the, the list goes on all the way around the world. It's the same sort of story in Europe. At some point, we're going to see the return of something called the bond vigilantes, aren't we? Can you tell us what is the bond vigilante? What's the relevance of this, of this high interest rate? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we had the April figures um, for UK borrowing, uh, borrowing much higher than expected. But interestingly... The interest payment for April, albeit some of it's a bit deferred, but the interest payment for April was $9.8 billion. You could put 20 new hospitals with that. So, you know, we are, we, we are in, you know, a pretty serious situation. Um, and, and the worry is, yes, that the hedge funds and others play games on the markets, but we get some really wild swings on bonds. And interest rates actually being squeezed, possibly even further in the short term. So, yeah, I, I mean, look, I think we saw that panic that happened before Christmas that led to the end of Liz Truss. At the moment, there's no panic, but before long, there might be. I think that's really what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're damned if you do, do damned if you don't on on government uh, yeah. fiscal policy at the moment. Um, Let's quickly turn to net zero as well, because we've got, especially France, to some extent Germany, and uh, possibly the EU, suggesting that they want to put a, a halt on more green regulation, that they want other countries to actually live up to their promises before they go any further in the EU. They want other countries to actually implement the EU's policies as they're supposed to be doing, uh, which they haven't done yet. Do you think that's really what's going on, or do you think they're having a change of heart about whether net zero is really viable? I think it's a case of pragmatism, isn't it? And I think, fun enough, Germany, I think, is a very major voice in this. The idea we're going to go all electric early in the next decade. I mean, just for the birds. For the birds. And so they've decided, the Germans have decided, they will continue with the internal combustion engine, but look for fuels that are much, much more efficient. I would suspect that you might see a bit more investment in the biofuel sector. I, I, I can see that coming really quite clearly. In the UK, we're still stuck on this idea that post-2030 we're going to manufacture electric cars only, despite the fact we produce hardly any batteries and we haven't got charging points. Uh, you know, I mean, this isn't going to happen uh, and we will be deferring as well. So I think the practicalities of net zero are hitting up against the theory. But there's, also a, there's also a growing consumer resistance. You know, if you've got a... Say so you've got a 1930s semi in 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 you know one of our cities. You know, the idea that you bring that up to the kind of standards that are being demanded with heat pumps, etc. I mean, you're looking at well, fifteen thousand pounds per house. I mean, it's just beyond. It's all well and good. You know, I did it with a chap last night. Oh, he's got a Tesla and it's marvelous, and he's got the yeah, but you know, you're running a business, you're earning six-figure money. You know, it's all lovely. It's a very middle class thing to want to save the planet, but the practicalities are that it doesn't happen. So, so there isn't a debate about climate change. 
there isn't even a debate about being worried about the world, but there is a debate about cost and and the practical implications of this policy. And and so, yeah, Europe is rowing back, and the UK will follow. But I, I, I do repeat the point. I do. I begin to think in the last week that there could be a lot more investment in biofuels. I I, I just feel that, Nick, and I, I I can see that coming. Yeah, my worry is what that does to, to food prices and to agriculture. Well, but that- no, of course, because you take food you, you you take food out of production. But of course, we're still stuck in this Carrie Johnson, um, you know, Ben Goldsmith madness. I mean, Chelsea Flower Show this week. Oh no, it's not about rose beds, not about lovely lawns. It's about rewilding. You know, and 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 the plan that Johnson, when he was prime minister, unveiled to the Tory conference was that thirty percent of UK agricultural land would be rewilded. Bring back beaver, he said. Well, there you go. Um, but no, I think, I, you know, I think since Ukraine, the idea that you should attempt to be more self-sufficient in energy and food uh, is gaining traction. I would be remiss of me not to ask you about Brexit, given the week you've had, uh, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, the part of it that I want to ask you about is the whole point of Brexit was that we would from that point on, not have to hear about this excuse that we're just following EU directives and we have no choice. The point was that we could conduct our own policy, whatever that may be. And part of the story was that they might conduct very bad policy, but if they did, we could hold them to account. They seem to be conducting some pretty bad policies, specifically on the issues that many people felt Brexit was about. What's going on here? Because if they don't fear the electorate, if that, that belief that we're the globalists, we know what's better, we're going to try and slip anything we can past you. If that belief persists, and we don't have you know, the Brexit party coming up every two weeks on every possible issue, where are we going over the long term? Yes. I mean, look, you know, if you, if you move house or you change a relationship, if you don't believe in it, it's going to fail. And so, you know, when they got this 80-seat majority and Boris was being all bullish, the truth is most people around him didn't believe in Brexit. They always saw it as a damage limitation exercise rather than a great opportunity, and they blown it. And whilst I was always honest with people that it was about the right to govern ourselves and poten- potentially, I used to joke, mismanage our own country, and boy, we're doing rather well with that. But there were, I think there were two realistic expectations that Brexit voters had. One, that the numbers coming into Britain would go down, because the pressures on housing, health, roads, schools, the list, I mean, the list as long as your arm, uh, let alone community cohesion, uh, you, you know, had reached such a point. So it was a realistic expectation that numbers would come down. Boris never believed in it. And frankly, we're living with a Tory great immigration lie. Lie to the electorate at every election. Sunak yesterday standing up. Once again, we're going to do X, Y, Z. Oh, and ha, you think we're bad? Look at the other lot. No, no, that doesn't wash anymore. It's difficult. I mean, Labour couldn't be worse than this. They, they couldn't be worse than this in terms of numbers. Um, and the other realistic expectation was that a massive EU legislation that was excessive, unnecessary, and burdensome would be removed, much to the joy of the small and medium-sized enterprises. Jacob Rees-Mogg, my friend Jacob, was the Minister for Brexit Opportunities, drew up a list of 4,000 laws to be repealed. Rishi Sunak has dropped that, scrapped it. 600 have gone, but they were obsolete and out of time 
anyway. So mass immigration now running at three times the number it was before Brexit, no regulations removed, and huge numbers of people saying, what the hell was it for? Now, you can argue, constitutionally, it's a success. We've reversed the status quo. We ain't rejoining. You can argue in foreign policy terms, Britain stands taller in the world. The AUKUS deal, leadership on Ukraine, whether you agree with it or not, but leadership on Ukraine, all of those things, Nick, you can argue. The vaccine rollout, you know, we did that far better on our own than we could have done within the EU. All of those things you can argue. But ultimately, you know, politics, referendums, general elections, they're won by people who spend about four minutes a day thinking about politics because they're kind of busy with jobs and mortgages and kids, you know, living their lives. And for them, they need to feel some material benefit, and they don't, and they feel betrayed. And so I did make this comment about 10 days ago that Brexit had failed in the eyes of most voters because of a Tories, or everyone's gone mental about it, you know. Um, but it has at least provoked a debate. And now we see when YouGov poll a big sample of Brexiteers 20% think it's going well. 35% just throw their hands up and say, I don't know. 37% say it's going badly. And of that 37%, 75% lay it firmly and squarely at the door of you know, the Johnson um, and now Sunak governments. So yeah, a complete failure to deliver, um, a, a complete absence of sincerity in delivering it, and I, I think it pretty much guarantees a Labour government. Uh, I, 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 I just don't see any way back for the Conservatives. If, you know, reform straight Brexit party was to rise again, well, they might shift the agenda, they might shift the promises, but probably would only help Labour get a bigger majority. Because in the, you know, Well, that's, that's, what I, I, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's not much of an improvement to vote in Labour, but at least Labour have actually made some, some significant shifts on immigration policy, right? So maybe it sort of is working. It's just a hell of a lot slower than we It's interesting. I mean, I mean, you know, again, polling this week showing by 1%, Labour were more trusted on immigration than the Conservatives. Yeah. You know, and, and whatever Starmer is or isn't, he's not Jeremy Corbyn. You know, I, I mean, you know, he, he is not mega scary. Um, you know, Yvette Cooper is speaking on immigration and that, you know, we can believe them, disbelieve them. But it's hard to believe they'd be worse than the Conservatives. So let's see. I mean, I I think the gap between the Westminster political and media classes and the country is even bigger than it was before the, before the UK insurgency launched 10 years ago. I think something's going to give in this system with the next five years. But the rigidity of first-past-the-post you know, it's quite hard to make significant breakthroughs. You can force the politicians into changing their language, but it's changing their behavior that really matters. So, um, you know, without being a council of despair, it's quite difficult. Yeah. It's disappointing to not have you standing up in the European Parliament pointing these things out with, a, you know, huge political presence. <laughs> yeah, the irony is the ultimate. Irony. I know, I'm going to say, I mean, you know, I dare not admit on camera that I missed the European Parliament. I mean, that wouldn't go down well, but... But it was at least a platform, yeah. And it was a threat. I think it was a very real threat. At least yeah. they, they perceived it that way, even in national politics. Um, Nigel, enjoy your week of uh, Brexit has failed chaos as it continues, or your 10 days as it continues. I, I certainly am. I hope everyone at home who's watching is too. Thank you.